Thanks for listening to Faith Assembly Podcast. Join us Sunday mornings at the Somerville campus at 9 or 11 a.m. and at the North Charleston campus at 1045 a.m. Thank you. We hope God richly blesses you through listening. We're going to talk about preparing for the fight. How do you get ready for this spiritual battle, this warfare that we are engaged in? Take your Bibles out and turn to Matthew chapter 16. We're going to talk about preparing, getting ready for the fight of our lives. Matthew chapter 16 and verse number 13. Let's stand together this morning for the reading of God's word today. So good to be back. Good to see you. And uh, I am excited about my message this morning. Matthew 16 and 13. And when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked the disciples saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist. Some Elijah. Others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hate shall not prevail against it and i will give you the keys of the kingdom whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven father today we need your anointing we need your help we know that we are engaged in, a, in spiritual warfare for the eternal destiny of the souls of men and women and i pray today god that the word of god will penetrate our hearts and our minds and our spirits that will engage with all power and might and authority the warfare you've called us to. We love you, God. We ask all this in your mighty name. Amen. There was a young black boy who grew up in the ghettos. He was fortunate to have in his home both his mother and his father living there, which often isn't the case in very poor, impoverished areas. Their family was very poor. But his mom and dad just uh, raised or earned enough money, gathered enough money to buy this boy a brand new bicycle when it came his birthday. And he was so excited to get his bike. But after a few days, his bike, brand new bike was stolen. And so this boy was enraged. He was mad. And so he went out looking for the person who stole his bike. And he ran into a police officer. And the police officer officer fearing for his future said that wouldn't be such a good idea and he took him under his wings and he took him to the gym and he started to teach the boy how to box that boy's name was Cassius Clay later changed his name to Muhammad Ali became one of the greatest fighters of all time one of the greatest to ever put on the boxing gloves and enter the ring now now as you look at Muhammad Ali he always prepared physically. He did the running. He did the sparring. He did the boxing. He did the speed bag. All those things you saw just a few moments ago. He did all that to get himself ready for the fight. But the one thing that maybe set him apart from some of the other boxers was his mental preparation. His mental getting ready for the fight. And, and he was asked one day in an interview, 
why is it, Rocky, you have such a mental toughness, a, a mental edge when you enter that ring with any opponent you face? And he made this statement, and I quote, To this day, I've never found my bike, but every time I got in the ring, I'd look across at my opponent and say to myself, that's the guy who stole my bike. Isn't that great? He prepared mentally before he ever stepped in the ring. Now, now we're, we come to a scene in the Word of God where Jesus Christ, he has been preparing, preparing his disciples for the, the fight of their life. It, it was a fight that I think up to this point they really didn't understand what kind of fight they were getting into. Probably didn't understand all the ramifications of the spiritual warfare and the battle they were about to embark on. And yet Jesus Christ has been training them and he takes them everywhere he goes. And so they listened to his teachings uh, and they watched demons being cast out. And they saw the power of Jesus Christ uh, and they saw people healed. uh, And they saw him feed the multitudes uh, and they trembled as he came walking on the water. And he calmed the storm uh, with the words of his mouth uh, and Physically, he is getting his disciples into shape. But now they needed that mental edge. They needed that mental toughness. They needed to be trained on how to think. And so part of their training, Jesus takes them out of their familiar environment. And he takes them out of their comfortability of Galilee and Judea into the unsettled world across the border to a pagan region known as to the Jews as the gates of hell. It was an area of Caesarea Philippi. It was a Caesarea Philippi. It was the capital of the Roman province of Judea. It was the seat of their governors. It was the headquarters for all the Roman troops. That's where they started and disbanded from. And, and it was the center of Roman government in that day and age. It was also the heart of pagan worship. They had 14 temples dedicated to the god Baal. They had one that was built in honor of Caesar and dedicated to his deity. There was a, a nearby cave, and, if, and I've been to Caesarea a couple of times, and it's a huge rock cliff, and you can see a cave down in the corner, and, and that's where the birthplace of the Greek god Pan was to have taken place. The very gates of hell itself. And embodied in all those temples... And all those idols that were erected and all around, there was the power of paganism. uh, There was the wickedness of ungodliness. uh, There was the dominion of Satan. It it was a scary place for good Jewish boys to be found. And yet Jesus takes them intentionally to Caesarea Philippi to prepare for the fight that laid ahead of them. And so he begins his training exercise in this very dark sinful area, this very dark, satanic region, uh, he begins by asking them a very simple question. Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And right away, they begin to raise their hand. Oh, ooh, I, I got it, Lord, right over here. I, I got this one. Uh, some say you are Elijah. And, and someone else said, no, I got it. Some said you're Jeremiah. And some said, well, Lord, you're, you're, you're one of the prophets. And then he asked the most penetrating question. He says, but whom do you say that I am? Now, now, now right away, thoughts are flashing through their minds and their brains and their thinking. And they think, well, he's been my constant companion. And he's been my teacher. And he's been my friend. And all these things are, are, are jumping in their mind. But Rocky speaks up. 
And Rocky says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And, and right away, we want to say, yeah, Rocky, you're getting it. You got it right. Way to go. Good job. You, you, you got this one. You really know now what's going on. Uh, we think Rocky is mentally focused now. He's ready for the battle. But keep on reading. Jump down to verse number 21. All of a sudden, the mood changes. Now, we're still in the same area. And Rocky's right on. And we think he's ready for the battle. But all of a sudden, he blows it. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. Suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and raised the third day. And Peter, Rocky, took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But he turned to Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you're not mindful of the things of God, but the things that be of men. All of a sudden, Rocky did so good, he, he, he knocks him out. I mean, he hits the home run punch, and then the next thing you know, he's flat on his back, and he is been knocked out himself and we all of a sudden get the idea he's really not mentally ready not prepared for the fight that lies before him unless peter begins to change his mind unless he changes his thought processes he is going to lose in the battle lose in the fight now you say what's that have to do with me well let me start out by saying every one of us are in a warfare whether you like it or not, the moment you said, God, I need you, come into my heart and life, you entered the battle. You entered the warfare. You're in the fight. You're in the arena. You are in the ring. Listen to 1 Timothy 6, 12. Fight the good fight of faith. Every one of us. Listen to 2 Timothy 2, 3. Endure hardship with us like a good soldier of Christ. Uh, and so we've got to get in shape. We have got to get ready for the fight. Now, Listen, today, you may be physically ready, if I can use that analogy. You're in church, that's a good thing. You're here, you're learning, you're growing, you're, you're learning in the Word of God. We're growing together as a body, you're, you're connected, and that, that's exciting. You know the Word of God, you, you study God's Word, you read the Word every day, and so you're getting physically in shape. You're involved maybe in being discipled by someone else or, or you are in the process of discipling somebody else. Uh, and, but the question today is, are you mentally tough? Do you have that mental edge that you'll need when you enter the ring? I want to give you three things that you have got to know if you're going to be mentally tough, many pre mentally prepared for the battle. Number one, you've got to understand the foundation of the church got to understand the, the foundation of the church. Now look at the verse again, verse number 18. And also I say that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Now, Jesus makes a little play on words here. The word Peter is the word Petros, and it means small stone, little stone, little rock. You are little rocky and then he uses the word and on this rock he uses the word petra which means a massive stone or a rocky cliff now keep in mind they're standing right in front of this huge massive cliff 
at Caesarea Philippi. And he says, you're a little stone, but I want to tell you, on this rock, this massive stone, I will build my church. Let me tell you, the church is not built on Peter. He is not the first pope. But the church is built on the wonderful confession that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's our foundation, that Jesus is the Christ, that he is Lord, that he is the Son of God. It is built on the Lord Jesus Christ and no one else. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and 11. For no other foundation can be laid than that which is already laid, which is Jesus Christ. I want to tell you, Christ is our rock. He's the one we build upon. Now, if you don't get this right, if you don't get this mental preparedness right, if you don't understand what your foundation is all about, if you build on the wrong foundation, the building will not stand. You can't build the church on personalities. You can't build the church on a pastor. You can't build the church on your own energy your own works, your own good deeds. But Jesus is preparing to build something more powerful, more alive, more indestructible than anything this world has ever seen. On this rock, I will build my church. Now, now, for those who are still confused about this verse, Peter never ever saw himself as the rock upon which the church would be built. Turn, if you would, to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse number 4. Coming to him as living stones, rejected in debt indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. He's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and who believes in him will be no, by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. To those who are disobedient, the stone the builders has rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Peter saw himself as a one of many stones that God takes and he puts into this spiritual house called the church that he is building. But he always saw Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone, the main foundation stone upon which everything else is built. Listen, when you become a Christian, when you make that confession, I believe in Jesus Christ, uh, I believe that you are the Lord, uh, I believe you are the Son of the living God, you make that confession of faith, then you come into the kingdom of God, and that becomes the very foundation of your salvation. Everything is based on that confession. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Let, let's, let's all say that together so there's no mistake. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Let's say it one more time. That's good. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Listen, that, my friends, is our foundation. Uh, it is Jesus Christ. Uh, it is that confession of faith. Uh, there is none other. You have to know exactly who Jesus Christ is. 
It's not a matter of what public opinion might be. Uh, some says this, uh, some says this, uh, but who do you say that I am? We have got to know thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. If God promised to build his church, then let me ask you a question. Why are so many churches today plateaued or declining? Why is the church seemingly in America at times seeming anemic and seeming weak? Let me tell you why. It is because we have hijacked the church. We have forgotten whose church it is. We have forgotten the foundation upon which the church is built on. And if we are not careful, we'll come together and begin to think this is my church. This is our church. Let me give you a pointer. Whoever owns something has authority over it. And whoever pays for it owns it. You pay for the house. You put the money down. You're the owner. Because you're the owner, you have an authority over that house. Jesus Christ paid for the church with his own precious blood. Therefore, he is the owner. Therefore, he has all authority. Listen, when Jesus Christ said, I will build my church, uh, that is very possessive language. Uh, it is always his church. You just have the privilege uh, of being one of many precious stones uh, who are owned by God, bought by God, paid for by God, and under his authority. The mistake many make is they think the church was built for them. It's all about me. And, and, and as a result, many churches develop control issues. And they fight for who's in control, who's in charge, who has the authority. And it leads to division. It leads to strife. It leads to church splits. When you begin to think you own the church, that it's your church, you become very me-centered. And so somehow the church is there to meet all my needs. We become very selfish. We become very exclusive. It becomes my own club. It's all about me. Listen, Jesus bought the church. He owns the church. He has authority over the church. And until we get that mental picture in our hearts and minds, until we get all that settled right out of the gate, the church will struggle. But when we understand the right foundation, that it's the Lord's church and everything, everything is built on him, then the promise will be true. He'll build his church. When you make that confession, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. When you start that as your foundation, you didn't say that so you could come back and sit in your pew on Sunday morning and relax and have a good time and say, feed me, feed me, feed me. Uh, but listen, uh, and you don't come to God and say, God, I'm here. Now I want you to meet my every need uh, and do what I want you to, when I want you to, and how I want you to. But it meant when you said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, you got in the ring. 
you got the boxing gloves on. You got ready to do spiritual warfare. You found a ministry. You found a place. You got out there in the neighborhoods, the community, wherever you go. And you took it to Satan. Wow. The applause is dying down. It's getting a little nervous out there. Fight the good fight. You made that confession to make a difference. And when that becomes your foundation, when you understand who owns the church, you become mentally prepared to go out into the world and take it to the devil. You got to understand the church's foundation. Number two, you've got to understand the church's mission. The church's mission. And he goes on to say, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, let, let me tell you a few things about, let's do just a little training right now. A little, a gate is not an offensive weapon. Some of you got the idea that we are going to hide out in our fortress called the church, called Faith Assembly, and we'll hide out and hang on until Jesus comes back. How many know a gate is not an offensive weapon? When is the last time you were attacked by a gate? And yet many in the church, listen to me, have developed a defensive posture that if I can just hold the fort, if I can hang on, if I can hold off this onslaught of darkness uh, that is all around me. But Jesus is our commander in chief and hell's gates cannot prevail against his church. And the church becomes God's battering ram to destroy the gates. And it's the church that's on the offensive, not the defensive. The gates. Now, when he used this phrase, gates of hell, it is a very picturesque language. I want to give you three nuances of what the gates were really all about. And you need to get these to understand what he meant when he says the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Number one, the gates of any city was the place of power and authority. It was the place, it was like city hall. And so our city hall, our governmental authority, all the business all the power, all the judging, all the trials, uh, all the courtrooms, uh, everything took place in the gates of the city. Remember when I preached on Boaz uh, and Ruth? Uh, he went to the gates of the city and met with the elders of the city in order to bargain for Ruth and Naomi and their land and all that was involved in that. And so it's city hall. All the important business was carried on there, and the elders passed their judgment to acquit or condemn at the gates. Stay with me. Turn to Colossians chapter 2. <laughs> oh, this is getting good. I, like, I love this. You ready? Colossians 2, 13. I said the judgment was carried on at the gates of the city. Here's the good news. The judgment has already been carried out. It's already been done. Listen to Colossians 2 and 13. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, 
he is made alive together with him, having forgiven all your trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of the requirements that was against us. That judgment that was against us, he wiped it out. Which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way. How? Having nailed it to the cross. Having disarmed principalities and powers. Remember, I said at the gates of the city is where the authorities, the principalities, the powers hung out. But judgment has already been decreed on the cross. He's already disarmed principalities and powers. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Isn't that incredible? The cross, when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he split hell wide open. The gates were demolished. He won. He went in and where we had been held in guilt and in bondage, he wiped the slate clean. He declared us innocent. The judgment was rendered. The King James says he spoiled principalities and powers. The NIV version says he disarmed principalities and powers. In other words, what he really did is when he died on the cross, he defanged the lions. He took all the teeth out of the lion's mouth. And so now we have a roaring lion, but all he can do is gum you to death. His teeth are gone. He has won the victory, and then he passed that victory or that authority onto the church. And he says, I'm going to build my church. I've already pronounced it done in the heavenlies. Uh, it's already been paid for. Now you carry out the judgment against the enemy. Now make no mistake about it. The enemy is organized. He does have gates. He is described as having principalities, powers, dominions, and kingdoms of darkness. It, 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 it paints a picture of a very organized enemy. Principalities, powers, rulers of wickedness, a kingdom of darkness. Now, in the gates, follow me here. In the gates, Satan got with his principalities and his powers and his rulers of darkness. And they planned out Calvary. And they even used one of his twelve to betray him. And they thought, boy, that's a master scheme right there. We'll get one of the insiders. We'll get one of his own boys to betray him. So they filled Judas. They even used the religious leaders to accuse him. And they got all the scribes and the Pharisees. And they got those, the Sanhedrin together. And they got those guys to accuse him. And they used the Roman government to carry out the execution. And the gates... And the principalities and the powers and the rulers, they thought they had it planned out to the very last detail. But they never counted on the resurrection power of Almighty God. The Bible says, for had they have known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Their plan backfired. 
All these demonic forces, you can just see them hovering together. Oh, this is a great one. We got them now. We'll get rid of him forever. They counted out the resurrection power of Almighty God. And when the stone was rolled away, the gates came tumbling down. Gates, gates. The second thing that gates represent is the gates are used to protect the city. Gates can lock people in or they can lock people out. Now, here's the irony. Many Christians are swept away by nothing more than gates. You, 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 you come up to a brother, a sister, you say, man, how, how were you wounded in battle? What happened to you? You get hit by a sniper's bullet? Did a hand grenade go off near you and you got some shrapnel in your body? Did you get hit with a bayonet and get your side opened up? Man, you look bad. No, no, no. I, I, I got hit by a swinging gate. We have allowed Satan to knock out military soldiers in the battle of God by nothing more than a swinging gate. In football, and, I, and I, some of you are still mourning because football is over. Hang on. Four more months, it'll be back. In football, listen to me. If you only play defense and you hold the line of scrimmage, the best you can ever hope for is a tie. You will never take new territory. You'll never advance the ball. You'll never push the ball into the end zone. I want you to turn to Psalm 107. 107 and verse 10. Listen to this verse. And those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death, bound in affliction and irons. Remember I said that gate locks you in or locks you out. Those who are bound in affliction and irons. Because they rebelled against the word of God. And despised the counsel of the Most High. Therefore, he brought down their heart with labor. They fell down, and there was none to help. Pretty bleak scenario. Trapped, locked in, bound, no one to help. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them out of their distress. And he brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and broke their chains in pieces. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for His goodness and for His wonderful works to the children of men. For He has broken the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron in two. I want to tell you, anything that kept you bound and, and behind the gates in enemy lines, Jesus Christ has come along. Remember, He said, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He came and He broke the gates of iron and He broke the chains and set us free. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for His goodness. And third, the gates of hell clearly represent, and maybe more so in a spiritual realm, not as much as, a, as in a physical analogy or illustration, but it, it represents the power of death. The power of death. Listen to Revelation 1 and 18. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys 
of Hades and death. So when he talks about the gates of hell, the ultimate gate of hell is the power of death. In fact, the Bible says death is our very last enemy. But I want to tell you, that victory was won decisively when Jesus Christ walked out of the tomb. And the word of God says, because he lives, I shall live also. And when I confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he is my foundation, immediately I receive everlasting life. And the gates are destroyed in my life. Death is that last and most feared enemy of man. It has been set loose in this world as a consequence of man's sin and rebellion. And death still casts its long, dark shadow over everybody. But the church has authority to go in and rescue the lost from that doomed city called death. And hates. We have the keys. We have the authority to bring them into a brand new city where there be no more crying, where there be no more death, where there be no more suffering, where there be no more pain. We have that authority to go out who are bound by death and bring them out and set them free. Hallelujah. You've got to understand the church's mission. We are not defensive. We're not just to come here every Sunday morning, week after week, and play church and hang on and hope our kids don't fall into sin and hope our young people don't go to the devil and hope we don't lose our children to somebody out there in this world. But we're to go out there and take the kingdom of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ because we are on the offensive. Gates are defensive. The church is offensive. Right thinking. Right thinking. Listen, we have got to be missional in everything we do. It is not about building programs for our enjoyment. It is about taking back territory and taking it to the devil and going into the streets and winning the lost and bringing them out of their captivity and leading them to life. Missional. Missional. That's why God's raised us up. Wow. Are you getting the mental picture now? Are you getting getting the way he's setting his disciples up? Number three, you've got to first understand the church's foundation and who owns it. You've got to understand our mission. And number three, you've got to understand the authority the church now has to carry out this mission. Go back, if you would, to Matthew 16. Matthew 16 and verse 19. And I will give you the keys. Now follow me here. We've got to understand the authority of the church. And I will give you, not Peter, the church. Everyone who makes that confession. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. The third thing we've got to get clear is we've got to understand the authority of his church. Now, if you have keys to the car, you have the authority over that car. You can go in and start that car. You can unlock that car. You can get that car going, hopefully. Uh, If you have the keys to the house and you give those keys to someone else, 
You say, you can come and go as you please. Here's the keys. Here's the kitchen. Here's the house. You give somebody authority over that house. Now listen, you don't own the house. But when you give someone the keys to that house, you give them authority over that house. The keys, listen to me, it's very, it's very simple, very clear. The keys are the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I give you the keys. I give you the gospel. I give you the good news. You've got it. Now use it. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ that opens up the door of salvation and takes them out of darkness and brings them into light. Peter used those keys on the day of Pentecost. And when he stood up and preached under the power of the Holy Spirit, 3,000 people were taken out of the gates of hell, out from behind those gates, and set free and came into the kingdom of God. Keys of the gospel. He later opened the door at Cornelius' house in, in Acts chapter 10. And he preaches the gospel. And Cornelius is saved. And they're filled with the Holy Spirit. And now it's going out to the Gentiles. And so once again, he takes the keys. The gospel. Turn to Romans chapter 10. You've got to get Romans 10. Romans 10 and verse 14. These are the keys in the hands of the church. How shall they call on him whom they've not believed? And how shall they believe in him whom they've not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel, the good news of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. They have not obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So then, faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. We can unlock the gates. We can bind the powers of darkness in people's lives. We can bring release into everlasting light. If we'll just take the keys and begin to use it wherever we go. Boldly going unto death's home turf and declaring to its captives the power of life through the Lord Jesus Christ. We've got the answer. We've got the good news. We've got everything we need. But we've got to use a key to declare that Jesus Christ is Lord. And what happens is we invade every authority, we invade every rule of darkness, we invade principalities and powers, we bust through the gates through prayer, through intercession, through spiritual warfare, through the word of our testimony, and we go in and we take back the territory and we release them, we loose them, and we lead them into everlasting life. And they'll come in the same way you did when they confess that Jesus Christ Lord. Now you can't save anybody, but you've got the keys to lead them to the foundation who is the Lord Jesus Christ. Keys of the gospel. And the ministry of gate crashing is not carried on when we get together on Sunday morning with our happy friends. 
gate crash, he's not going in in here. Now, there may be a few who don't know Christ who will be delivered out of darkness this morning, and that is awesome. But the real gate crashing is going to take place when you go out this week, and you go back to your job, and you find that man or woman going through a divorce. You find those teenagers hooked on drugs. You find your friend who doesn't know Jesus Christ, who's atheistic, agnostic in their mind and their thinking, and you begin to share the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you begin to take those keys, the message of the good news of Jesus Christ, uh, and we begin to crash down Satan's gates. I love busting up his gates. It's in the ring. It's in the arena of struggle and blood that you and I have been called by God. And you may have all the physical training, you may come to church, you may be reading your Bible and doing all those kinds of wonderful things, but we have got to be mentally tough. We've got to know the right foundation. We've got to understand our mission and be missional, and we've got to understand the authority we have that Christ has given us, the keys to the kingdom of heaven. There's a sermon that Jesus Christ preaches, and I'm about done. Matthew 5 and verse 13. He says, you are the salt of the earth. You, us, we're the salt of the earth. How many know the world tastes terrible? The world does not taste good. It is fouled with the bitterness of sin. But we are called to change the taste. We're called to be the salt He goes on to say, you are the light of the world. Listen, this world is dark. It's a dismal place. It is filled with the foreboding corners of evil lurking in every shadow, everywhere you turn. But we are called to come and shed the light of the Lord Jesus Christ into the darkest corners of this world and expose the wickedness of men. We're the light of the world. We are called to make a difference. We are called to storm the gates of hell itself and release the captives. And people will go to heaven or hell depending on how you do in the ring. Let me say that one more time. People will go to heaven or hell depending on how you do in the ring. The gates of hell shall not shall not, shall not prevail against the church. Now, there may be circumstances and times of when it looks in the natural like the gates of hell seem to be, be prevailing. And you walk down our high school campuses today and you go on the college campuses today and you go into the inner cities of our, of our nation today and you see marriages that are being torn apart uh, and individuals' lives that are being ruined by drugs uh, and alcohol and addiction and bondage. But I will tell you, ultimately, the gates of hell will, will prevail. And the Bible says his glory will cover over all the earth. It will happen. There will come a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord of glory. But in the meantime, until that day occurs, Satan is mad. He's really fired up. He is mad, mad, mad. But let me describe Satan to you. He is like a chicken with his head cut off. I wasn't raised on the farm, but people have told me this is true. You can take a chicken, you can cut its head off, 
that chicken, after its head is cut off, will jump up into the air and run around, I don't know how long, several seconds, before he finally falls over and dies. The devil's head was cut off on Calvary. It was lopped off. Now, he may be jumping up, he may be running around, but his authority has been taken away through the cross, through Calvary. He's running around like a chicken with his head cut off. And he's running around until the Bible says Jesus puts all things under his feet, the last enemy being death. In the meantime, that's why we jump into the ring, we get on the gloves, and we fight. And that's why we get physically prepared. We come to church, we read God's word, we pray every day, we get into accountability groups, we do those kind of things, but we've got to get mentally prepared. We've got to understand what our real mission is. The church's foundation, the church's mission, the church's authority. I want to read a quotation. Billy Sunday made this quotation. He was a famous evangelist at the end of the Depression era. He was also a baseball player. He would get so fired up in his preaching, he'd run and slide into home base, describing how we come into the kingdom of God. But he made this statement. I'm against sin. I'll kick it as long as I have a foot. I'll fight it as long as I have a fist. I'll butt it as long as I have a head. I'll bite it as long as I have teeth. But when I'm old and footless and fistless and toothless, I'll gum it. Until I go home to glory and it goes home to perdition. <laughs> Isn't that a great statement? Listen, Satan has a gate, but we have the indwelling Christ inside of us. Satan may have a gate, but we have the creative power of the universe at our disposal. Satan has a gate, but we have the power and anointing of the Holy Spirit of God. So why are we running for cover? Why are we hiding out? Let's take the battering rams and go in and smash the gates of hell and bring them out. Let's go back into the ring and get our bicycles back. Amen? Amen. Hallelujah. Let's go get that bike. Let's go get it back. Let's get that edge. Let's take it to the enemy. Thanks for listening. For more, check out faithishere.org.